Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This week we're going to continue a discussion through the Psalms. My name's Cameron Rogers and it's good to be back. Yeah, g'day. Uh, my name's Ken and I just love this uh, Bible discussion and it's great to be here again. I'm Lachlan and I have to admit I've been looking forward to this all week since we gave it the very first effort last time. Hello everyone, my name is Luke. I'm very glad to be joining for the first time. Uh, I work for an international non-profit organization in Hong Kong and uh, I'm very glad to be a part of this discussion. Right, so last week we looked at Psalm 46. The psalm we're looking at this week is in some ways similar, some ways quite different. We're looking at Psalm 20. We might start with a prayer. Locke, would you like to say a prayer this week? Yeah, sure. Dear God, we're coming to you from our respective places, with our respective burdens, with our stresses. Uh, it's been an interesting week, and we we thank you for your sustaining providence. Be with us now as we look at Psalm 20 and as we shift our thoughts to you and uh, spend a bit of time sharing in communion with each other and with you. Amen. Amen. As with last week, let's read the psalm all through once, and then we'll come back and discuss it after. All right, well, how about I read it? Because uh, I chose it. Sounds good. Psalm 20, prayer for victory. The Lord answer you in the day of trouble. The name of the God of Jacob protect May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favour your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfil all your plans. May we shout for joy over your victory and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfil all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord will help his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories by his right hand. Some take pride in chariots and some in horses. But our pride is in the name of the Lord our God. They will collapse and fall, but we shall rise and stand upright. Give victory to the King, O Lord. Answer us when we call. That's got a really delightful, positive, uplifting sort of feel to it, actually, just basing on my, my, my initial emotional response to the beautiful flow of words. There's a good sequence of verbs. If you look at the things that God's going to do, or, well, actually, there's no guarantee he is going to do it, is it? We're, we're just asking him to do it. We're asking for answer, for protection. May you send help. May he remember us. Give us the desires of our heart make plans succeed so it is quite a, a sequence of we're asking god for good things yep fulfill all your petitions i think it's a good idea to go through and just work on those yep. help his anointed answer from his holy heaven so answer with mighty victories and give victory answer us when we, isn't that interesting the last one there answer us when we call do we really expect that there's a great story, if I can share it here. It's favourite children's story of all time. It was Adele Fall, who's an English teacher, was my English teacher at Avondale High School. And very dynamic, very engaging. And she had a children's story at College Church. And the children's story had everything in it that a children's story should have to make it succeed. There was a prop. She had a pram, a little kid's pram that you'd put dolls in. And um, the story was about a little girl who wanted a doll, really as wanted a doll's pram, really wanted a doll's pram, saw it in the shop, and the, the kids all got up and they had a look at this pram, and it was pretty good. They went over its various features, which weren't that many. It was a fairly simple pram. But at the, in this story, the girl's parents said, no, you, you can't have 
this prayer. And the girl was distraught. She went home. Anyway, a week or two later, it was Christmas. And at this point, Adele's husband uh, came down the aisle dressed as Santa Claus with a present for the children to unwrap. And the excitement levels were through the roof. And and they unwrapped it. And it was, it was another pram. And they unpacked it and they set it up. And they put a few dolls in it and they looked at all the features. And this pram had m- many more features. It had a hood and it could recline and it had... It had everything. And um, it turns out that this girl's parents had already bought her the better pram when she was asking her for the, asking them for the inferior one. And uh, Adele finished by saying, so sometimes we ask God for things and he doesn't answer us. And why is that? And she passed the microphone to one of the boys who was about four who said, because uh, he can't talk. <laughs> And and Adele said, that's a wonderful answer. You can go back to your seats now. <laughs> <laughs> it, but it really is a, a, a real question, isn't it? How is it that he would answer us? How is it that he would communicate with us? Is it simply from the fact that what we asked for comes to fruition or doesn't come to fruition and we realise later that it was best for it not to? Uh, I don't know. Um, of course, this psalm doesn't suppose that it would happen, that it does happen. It's only a request. And if you were to turn to the psalms to find out if it did happen, if the things that the psalmist asked for came about, you'd get a very mixed response, uh, depending what psalm you read. Indeed, you just go over to Psalm 22, which is a plea for deliverance. Um, and that's the psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a C.S. Lewis essay where he talks about two different types of prayer, two different types of asking. And they're both endorsed in the Bible, both commanded in the Bible, and they're both modelled by Christ. So one of them is the prayer of faith, the prayer, it is your faith that's healed you, and it's faith that this particular event that you asked for would come about. And were you not to have faith, presumably the thing wouldn't have happened. And the other one is the submissive prayer, the prayer, I'm praying for this, but I I don't really know if it's going to happen or not. In fact, I'm not even sure if it should. So may it happen according to your will. And both of those prayers are good prayers, uh, but you can't pray them both simultaneously. No, and sometimes I think we just put that latter one on there as a bit of a a cop-out. You know, well, you know, if it doesn't happen, we really want this, God, but... If it doesn't happen, well, you know, I better put in there that we only want what you want. Uh, Incidentally, in this essay, in this essay by C.S. Lewis, he finds no solution to this conundrum. He says, I have no idea what the answer to this is. Uh, I don't know how we ought to pray. It's not clear in what manner we should ask God for things. And yet we should. I've just been quiet for a moment because I've been going and digging to find a, a thing that's been on my mind since we read since you read through verse 7 about nations boasting of their chariots and horses. If you just read that from our perspective, and if I had read that without having seen in a book an interesting detail, it would have meant very little to me. But it's, it's fascinating to realize that writing from a Jewish perspective, this actually carries a, a bit more weight than, than we first think. So, In Deuteronomy 17, God has in fact instructed the Israelites, if they take a king, 
in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, it says the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses. And you sort of think, well, hang on a minute, why, why is that? But this theme comes through all over the place. When Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem, he's not riding on a horse. He's riding on a donkey. And this is because the Israelites have been diligent in following the instruction not to accumulate horses. He would have found it difficult around Jerusalem to find a horse to ride in on. And, and it seems that the narrative here is that the horses and chariots are the military machinery of Egypt. And way back in the Exodus story, the horses and the chariots are what the Egyptians come chasing the Israelites soon after they've, they've left Egypt, right? So they are the icon of the military power of the empire that the Israelites are trying to escape. And that's why in Deuteronomy, it seems that God is instructing the Israelites not to accumulate horses. Now, an interesting little anecdote that happens through the history of the Old Testament is that King Solomon, who of course is incredibly wise and has a, an amazing um, sort of experience. There's the, the visit of the Queen of Sheba. Solomon is wealthy. He is wise. He is powerful. But at some point in Solomon's story, even we pick up that he's gone slightly off the straight and narrow path. And we mostly identify that point when he gets all of his wives and concubines. But actually, in the story, before it starts to talk about that situation, it, and I'm, I've found that in 1 Kings, I think it's also in, in Chronicles, but in 1 Kings 10, Solomon accumulates horses. 1 Kings 10, 26, for example, and Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So when we're here in Psalm 20 and, and the author writes that some nations boast of their chariots and horses, he's not talking about boasting of their speed or their, their ability to win races. It's a, it's a boasting of their military might and their power to exert rule over their dominions and over other nations. It's not just Egypt. There's a story from the judges. Is it Sisera who's, who has many chariots and they get stuck in the mud? I think in that story, the, the horses and the chariots play a, a pivotal role as well. So if you look at verse 7 and 8, you could read that in... It's not quite an illusion, perhaps, but you could... You could make an allusion to the to the Exodus event with the Red Sea. Ah. Some trusting in chariots, some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. They were brought to their knees and fell, uh, the Egyptians, but we rise up and stand firm. I could add something as well that occurred to me while I was listening to you talk about this emphasis on the horses and chariots. Obviously, this reading comes from my personal employment and worldviews. But I think there's a very strong concept of the Israelite approach to central worldly authority, and also how that relates to social justice, in that a strong military owned entirely or controlled entirely by a king or an emperor tends to produce a very unjust, unequal society. And uniquely, I think, uh, among all of their um, contemporaries, the Israelite societies were, were much fairer and more egalitarian. They did not have a great wealth disparity between the rulers and the common people, excepting in some cases, like you mentioned, Lachlan Solomon, 
before the great wealth and the concubines and all the things which we tend to focus on, there were the horses and chariots. And that was a sign that he was already becoming the sort of king that God explicitly tried to prevent the Israelites from ever having. But uh, we know that story as well. The other thing that I picked up when you were talking about these chariots and Solomon's accrual of them, it's interesting to go right back to the Deuteronomy 17 that you drew our attention to, Locke, uh, and it says, even so he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. So don't go back to Egypt and get more horses and then come over to the, uh, the passage that you referred us to in 1 Kings 10 and you see that Solomon gathered the chariots and horses. Verse 28, Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. So don't go back to Egypt and get the horses. That's exactly what Solomon did. Thinking about that Exodus story, we have actually had a comment come in on last week's episode when we were looking at Psalm 46 and the theme of being still. Narelle from New South Wales commented that being still reminded her of the Exodus story, and in particular Exodus 14.14, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Narelle says, uh, the times I've stood by and seen how God works have been very encouraging and faith-building experiences. So I think this is this is really interesting. There is a, a strong connection here between uh, what we're chatting about today and some of the themes of, of being still and waiting on God that we talked about last episode. Narelle also noticed in Psalm 46 the theme of a river and pointed out that there's a connection to the river in Genesis 2:10, flowing out of Eden, uh, and also river features in Revelation 22, verse 1, in the New Jerusalem. Uh, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. Yeah, and it turns up in Ezekiel as well. Yeah, it would be interesting to do a study of rivers in the scripture. Yeah, yeah. This might be a good discussion for a subsequent week because one thing that you can do very clearly you see a strong contrast between rivers and seas. The Jews were not into oceans. There's the flood, which is an ocean, a sea that covers the whole earth. And in Revelation, of course, there's going to be no more sea. And, and God is praised for setting a boundary to the ocean and saying you can come this far but no further. So they were right into rivers, though. Ah, that's interesting. I'm trying to reflect on how that, how I view rivers and oceans there, there's something about the ocean the, the waves you know the constancy and the rhythmic nature of the waves that's it's a bit like watching a fire uh, yeah. there's, there's a there's a mindfulness sort of that comes from it um, and, and a river has a similar thing just watching it flow and move and but there's something more sinister about an ocean than there is about a river in my my emotional reaction to it is you know there's 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 more there's more darkness and more more potential for bad in an ocean than there is in a river with psalm 20 i've got a new question that's occurring to me going back and looking at the opening verses does it seem as if this psalm is being written in a time of trouble for the author or in a time of reasonably good things for the author, contemplating times of trouble. Because it opens with, in times of trouble, may the Lord answer you cry. 
What's what's your sense on that? It's sort of contrasted in a way to the ones that where he really is in trouble. It, it feels a bit different. Like this, you started off and said it sort of got an upbeat feel to it. So it's it's almost like got an upbeat feel to it. Well, look, I know there'll be times of trouble, but let's hope that God sorts them out for us too. But when he's actually in a time of trouble, it's terrible and woe is me and where are you, God? I, I don't know. It's an that's a, I'd not thought of that, but that's an interesting question. That's my sort of sense of it. I I think that it it is a little bit like that in in my reading of it. The I'd not stopped to think about this until the question had occurred to me just a few minutes ago. But especially these opening three verses, um, they sound a little bit a little bit like the the sort of neat Sabbath school answer that you might give when you're actually not experiencing deep troubles. Things are going pretty well in your life, but you are contemplating or discussing, you know, that there must be some people in the world who are who are having some trouble or maybe trouble times will come for me. And so we sort of recite this this blessing almost, you know, may he send, may God send help from his sanctuary and strengthen us from Jerusalem. May he remember all our gifts and look favorably on our burnt offerings. I don't want to sound as if I'm as if I'm saying that they're just trite simplifications i think that the the opening here of psalm 20 is a very profound idea to be anticipating if i'm correct uh, anticipating these times of trouble and and building if you like a sort of memorized pattern that you can fall into as a default because often when you do hit the times of trouble you don't have the presence of mind or the calmness and peace to be able to sit and consciously process through everything so it, it does actually fall down to some of those default trains of thought that you've built into yourself. I think that's one of the roles of some of the disciplines of the Christian life. I think that that's a very insightful point, Locke. It's too easy to label something as trite and simplistic. When you are in the middle of pain and suffering, any explanation or everything feels trite and simplistic. And it's not fair to say that someone who's not, you know, in the throes of pain and suffering has nothing to offer. There are some things that we see clearly more clearly when we're in the event, but there are times when an outside perspective is needed. Interesting that the help that is sought is from the sanctuary and the support that is sought is from Zion and, and that, that God will remember the offerings and favour the burnt sacrifices. So it, it's a help that has its source in worship. Ooh, that's an interesting idea. I like that. Good. Yeah. It's also interesting, actually, now that I think about it, that this psalm would be one of the minority of psalms that is, is uh, I mean, most of the psalms, most of the psalms are very personal. Um, it's, it's, this is what I am experiencing, God. Uh, this is what I'd like. I want vengeance on my enemies, or I want to praise you for the wonderful creation, etc., etc. Whereas this is very much interceding on behalf of another person. God is not the immediate audience of the psalm it's it's one person saying to another person may the lord answer you may he send you help may he grant you support may he give you the desires of your heart it does move a bit more inclusive when it talks about we and us together but it, it is very much a prayer of one person for another well it's interesting to wonder about is it to himself at a different point in time Maybe this isn't what the author meant, but I think that there's some value in this, this idea that I'm speaking to my future self and I'm trying to give that future self some advice 
Uh, I think a lot of us wish that we could speak to our past selves and give that past self some good advice. Good idea to give our future selves some advice too sometimes. There, there are those, um, you know, the, in the in-flight magazines, sometimes you see those uh, yeah, interviews with successful people. And you know, what advice would you give yourself all those years ago? And, and most often it turns out to be, uh, don't, don't stress about things so much. Yeah, exactly. Now, I, I had two thoughts. One, I asked, I read through this psalm uh, with my wife, Melissa, and asked her what came to her mind. And her first question was, the victory in this psalm seems to be, well, maybe it's not, but there's, there's military illusions. It's illusions to military victory. Over what are we asking for victory today? Yeah, that's quite close to a, a thought that was occurring to me, which is, you know, it opens with the idea of times of trouble. And I think a lot of people around the world at the moment are experiencing such things, times of trouble in relation to uh, either the whole co coronavirus situation or the response to it. It overlaps with your question. It doesn't answer it. Is it possible that that sort of thing can be something that this psalm uh, resonates with in terms of a call to give us victory over? Yeah, I mean, the day of trouble. We've got a day of trouble. Is the victory something a bit more personal? What appears in the Old Testament as physical or military struggles between God's people and, you know, pagan, heathen Philistines uh, is reimagined in Paul's writings as an internal struggle. Uh, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Who can save me? Um, thanks be to jesus are we subscribing to an to a less informed theology if we imagine that the circumstances we are to seek victory over are exclusively external circumstances i think there is always that struggle i, I guess what i'm saying is is the coronavirus the thing that we need victory over or is the thing we need victory over, the urge to be rude to other panic buyers in the supermarket. <laughs> uh, well, I haven't yeah. been to the how supermarket. Many do, how many rolls of toilet paper have you hoarded in your garage? <laughs> well, the, the funny thing is that two months ago, toilet paper was half price, and Mel had asked me for some toilet paper, and just as a joke, I arrived home with a car full of it. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, but that panic buying mindset, is that something we need victory over? Because it's essentially a selfish, it's it self-preservation overriding rational response. Well, I, I had a question that maybe one of you might be able to, to answer who's more uh, well-versed in, in the um, Jewish context. When it says the day of trouble, which is the, the phrasing that I'm looking at, um, is that a specific or a general reference? Is that, do, as in, does it mean... Um, just any troubles that you face generally, or does the day of trouble have a specific meaning that a, a Jewish reader would understand immediately is this particular context or this type of situation or uh, this personal challenge or whatever it might be? That's an interesting question. I did a Google search, a, a search through a, con a concordance, and that phrase turns up quite a lot in the Psalms. It turns up in Job, too, how the evil man goes free in the day of trouble and has salvation in the day of wrath. Job's questioning how in the day of trouble that you know, evil men go unpunished. And in Psalms 20, it appears in Psalms 27, 
for in the day of trouble he will keep me secretly in his pavilion. In Psalm 50, they will call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver them. In Proverbs it says, if you lose courage in the day of trouble, your strength is small. Yeah, and then in Proverbs 25 it says, a broken tooth and a tottering foot is confidence in an unfaithful man in the day of trouble. <laughs> yeah. I don't know whether they were picturing a tangible event. Obviously, as, as Adventists, we've also had various pictures of the day of trouble and the time of trouble preceding the second coming of Jesus. It seems to me that the Israelites in the Old Testament histories certainly had a number of pretty stark days of trouble. Uh, we've just come out of a quarter uh, reading Sabbath school lessons about Daniel in his context. That whole time surrounding the exile was very legitimately a a day of trouble for these Hebrew believers. I don't think I know enough to answer whether whether it meant something specific or not. What I like about your question, Cam, is that it it actually forces us to think in a in a slightly more communal sense, which is really nice to to remember that we are a community, even though we're not meeting face to face as much as we used to, because if the trouble that we're trying to deal with is something like coronavirus, then it's external, visible, and and not subtle. But if we're in a community and we are in fact trying to, uh, you know, ask God's blessing, and as we as we tackle troubles that might be of a bit more of an internal and personal nature, that won't necessarily be obvious to those around us. And I think that's a fairly valuable reminder. It's a fairly valuable caution to take on board when we're interacting with friends, perhaps even family members, people in our communities. It may not be obvious to us whether they are in a place of abundant goodness or experiencing a time of trouble where they're sort of desperately reaching out and needing these kind of reaffirmations and blessings from God. As you speak, it occurs to me that times of distress have, have some very real advantages. If you're in a time of distress, you know, when it says, may the Lord answer you, that infers you, you have been asking for something. May he remember your sacrifices. May he give you the desires of your heart. This is a time where we have asked God for things, where we, where we have desires. We really want stuff of him. May the Lord grant your requests. The person to whom the psalmist is writing is obviously someone who's very aware of their need. And in that sense, you know, a time of, of trouble may have many benefits to it. It doesn't always feel like that, though, does it? At the time. Um, it, it certainly doesn't. But I think that that may be one of the key messages of, of this psalm, because it is overall quite an optimistic writing. And it's saying, it's, it's painting a very good picture of what will happen in your times of trouble, in fact, uh, because you've been faithful and because God hears your prayers, he will support you in those times. So it, it is, I think, meant very much as an encouragement the other thing I wanted to ask about this psalm, uh, there, there are moments of great triumph in the Bible. Gideon with his very small army, in the judges, um, God's miraculous deliverances. There's the stories we related last week where the Israelites are told to just stand and watch and God delivers them from their enemies. Very much in the sentiment of this psalm that it's God's intervention that's the defining essential quality of a deliverance that, that means something, that our contribution is, is in comparison very small. 
My mind wandered, though, to a hypothetical situation in which the Israelites arrived at the Promised Land and set up a camp and told God, we're 100% trusting you, God. We'll just sit here for a couple of weeks. We'll put out a barbecue. We're going to hold a picnic. And next month we'll move in. We're not going to trust in horses and chariots. Uh, we're just going to trust in you. And once all the work's done, we'll just step in. And we often think that that's the way God works. And it's certainly true that a characteristic of the kingdom of God is that the results always, well, I hesitate to use the word always, but the, the results exceed the expected outcome uh, from human effort. But that doesn't mean that human effort is excluded, that we just sit and do nothing uh, somewhat presumptuously like the, because we fear God, you know, won't bless us or because in fact, that would show that we don't have faith. Yeah. There might be all sorts I of thought... reasons why we would do nothing like the uh, person with the one talent, you know, put it in the ground. I find myself turning in this sort of train of thought regularly back to the story of Nehemiah. And I find it so, so comforting. You recall that Nehemiah was there rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and had all of these surrounding kings come and they were trying to distract him and they were trying to trick him and they were trying to attack him and they were basically trying to prevent Jerusalem being restored to a fortified city. And at one point it gets fairly pointy. And so Nehemiah issues these instructions and says, well, what I want is for everyone to pray and then also basically sleep in your in your armor or sleep with your with your sword still still strapped by your side and it's i love it because it's this it's this really beautiful sense in which we're just going to do both mm. yes and i think you've found an excellent example to illustrate i don't i suspect again just my own interpretation that the the israelites didn't see any contradiction there at all we tend to think of God's work as being entirely separate, a separate thing from human effort. You have what people do on one side over here, and it's worthless and weak and pathetic and useless. And then you have what God does over here, and it's empowering and transformative and wonderful and supernatural and all the rest of it. But it, it doesn't seem like, for many of these stories, Nehemiah is just one of them, the Israelites saw any sort of difference in that. It was all part of the same response to a situation which was absolutely we're praying but you're also doing everything you can because that's your responsibility as well even if we feel like we ourselves are powerless doing what we can is an important part of the deal getting back to this idea it's it's a bit uh it's a bit foolish to sit back and in our own problems expect god to do everything without any effort this psalm is of course not so much about our own problems as about someone else's problems and we're very clearly told in the New Testament that it's insufficient. It's totally inadequate to say to someone, look, I'll pray for you. That's in James, isn't it? I'll pray for you. You're hungry. I'll, I'll pray for you. Go oh, and be what, well what, fed. Go and be well fed. I'd, I'd really enjoy it if you had a good meal. Could you do that for me? That's not sufficient. That's not what spiritual life is like. So one thing which I'd like to come back and discuss is Psalms 20. If we are to view ourselves... As God's agents in the world, we are agents of his intervention in other people's pains and sufferings. How does that influence our reading of the psalm? 
I was reminded of uh, Paul's an analogy of the church as a body, and Christ is the head. And the head is obviously a very important part of the body, but it doesn't actually do much in terms of, uh, you know, it instructs the hands to do this and the hands do it and instructs the feet to do this and the feet go do that. And as Christ's body on earth, collectively, we are responsible for helping to implement God's agenda. As you were telling that, Cam, I had the picture in my mind. You're saying, very good point, that this is this is written to, to somebody else telling them, you know, may God bless you. I can well imagine, for example, just my imagination, David is writing this, you know, maybe to some military commander of his who's, who's under threat. And he's writing this, but at the same time, he's also getting ready to go and, and go to his friend's assistance because he's doing both. Mm. He's praying for God to help his friend, and he's also going to help his friend because it's the same thing. Uh, I quite like that idea. So when, when we say, may the Lord answer you, we say, we say to someone else, uh, oh, look, may God help you in your distress. What ought we be thinking of doing? When when we read, uh, look, may God send you help from the sanctuary. What what sort of responsibility does that place on us? May God remember your faithfulness. How does that influence how we should treat this person? And may God give you the desires of your heart. That particular verse is one that has a real personal meaning to me. That verse is one, and the story is far too long to tell now, but that one has God has used to in the way I see it, speak directly to me. There's a delightful ambiguity in it. Is. Good, good, Ken. You said last week there's a delightful ambiguity in this psalm, and I haven't been able to find it, and I've been stressed all week. Uh-huh. Here it is. This is the delightful ambiguity. You read it at face value, and you say, may he grant you the desires of your heart. And we start that and we say, well, we have this desire of my heart, And we want God to fulfill that desire. But maybe it's not just saying that. Maybe he's saying, may God give you the desire that you should have. So may he grant you the desires of your heart, maybe give you those desires so that you can then pursue those things that are good and not just that he will give you what you want because we all know that so often what we want isn't what is really good and much better to have not just the desire fulfilled, but the right desire. It was it was worth waiting for. It's going to keep me busy for the next week thinking about it. I have a three-year-old who's now thankfully out of this phase, but for at least a month or two, 90% of the things he said began with the phrase, but I don't want to. It got to the point where we were at the dinner table and we said, would you like some pasta? And we, oh, but I don't want to. And uh, we said, well, that's okay. You can have whatever you want, but I don't want whatever I want. <laughs> and at that point, at that point, I just gave up. Uh, but the irony to this was, this, this occurred at a time of some stress in my workplace. And I... You know, sometimes as a teacher, I get asked to teach in certain ways or do things just this way and not that way. And it got to the point where I said, I said to Mel, I said, I just don't want to. And the, the minute it came out of my mouth, I thought, ah, I've been trapped. Yeah. Um, but there is, there is some things you just want. 
And the idea that God could impart to us better wants, um, better de- desires, is a powerful one, I think. Yeah. It's a very encouraging one, I think, because I think anybody who tries very hard to be a Christian uh, sooner or later runs into exactly what Paul expressed so perfectly and was already quoted today. One of the things you do want as a Christian is better wants, and and it's very hard to get them by yourself. Uh, mm. That's for sure. But is there nonetheless a role that you have to play in that transformation of those desires? Yes, oh, God grants them to you, but is there a role that you have to play in it? There is an element, though, in which as soon as you say, I, I, I want to have better wants, then your contribution has already been made. It's certainly part of your contribution. I feel like there's something in C.S. Lewis that, that talks about this very clearly, but I can't remember any exact reference. Uh, okay, well, in, in The Great Divorce, where the, there's a bus that runs every week from hell up to heaven, it's obviously a fictional imagined account. Anyone can hop on the bus from hell and go up to heaven. And one of the problems with hell, in fact, the defining feature of hell is that everyone gets what they want without any effort. But when you get to heaven, there's real desire. And in the book, every person who catches the bus from hell up to heaven catches the bus back to hell because there's something they want more than there's something they want either about the comforts or it might be a a treasured resentment. They hop off the bus and they see someone in heaven who they never thought would get to heaven. And if you're here, I'm not going to stay here because they've been, you know, got some cherished resentment or, you know, and and there's a phrase that Lewis quotes, I can't remember what it is, uh, something about better to rule in, in hell than to live in heaven. This role of our desire is a very potent thing. Um, there, there are only two sorts of people. There are those who say to God, your will be done in my life, and those to whom God says, okay, your will be done. Yeah. Yeah, I think that this sort of idea is links back to to my little mental journey where I was just wondering uh, a few minutes ago whether some some part of this psalm might not be partly about that discipline of training your desires. Interesting that it is training that's needed in those things. The other thought uh, that just came to me as I was reading through, I made a comment earlier that um, there's no guarantee in the psalm that God will bring this salvation. But I'm not sure if that's true. Certainly in the first part, may he answer you, suggests the possibility that he might not. May he send you help, you know, acknowledges that sometimes help seems not to come. May he remember you. And God's remembrance is always associated associated with God's action. God remembers the Israelites in captivity. He remembers, is it Hannah? And she falls pregnant. He remembers Noah in the ark and sends the wind. So God's remembrance is a fairly potent thing. May he give you the desires of your heart? Well, let's hope, but perhaps that might not occur, so it is something that we must hope for. But there is something that the psalmist knows in verse 6. He knows that God saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven. And he knows that while some trust in chariots, he and or we have decided to trust in the name of the Lord. And... You're right, because when God answers from heaven, it is with action, that is, mighty victories by his right hand. And when we trust in the name of our Lord, they will collapse and fall and we will rise and stand upright. 
this is contradicting part of our earlier discussion. We, we were talking about the fact that sometimes God's answer is, is not clear, or sometimes God's answer is not evident. But in verse 6 it says, I know that the Lord saves his anointed, he answers him. How then are we to interpret circumstances where we ask for help and, and there's no answer apparent? Well, we have a good example of that. Jesus himself asked for this cup to be taken. It wasn't. If one reads his prayer, it's interesting to see how it changes from take this cup from me, if it is possible, take this cup from me, to it's, an acceptance. I think that when we are... When we are challenged to be God's hands and feet and I, I don't do it as well as I should I probably don't even feel as guilty about that as I should this idea that we are called to something bigger uh, to make an impact in other people's lives to make a difference I think is a salvation of sorts there, there is lots of legitimate cause for stress at the moment with the virus but it is I think healthy for all of us to have our perspectives reset yeah, that's one of the important roles, I think, of of the Bible in our lives and of coming together and reading it. I, I think it plays this role best when the Bible is read in community, um, more, than, more so even than just alone. That's how I've, I've experienced it. That role of resetting our perspective. But I, I would say also um, that it's very important in these times, as I think we have made clear from from this psalm, to be looking out for how we can help other people, how we can be an answer to prayer. I mean, I personally have not been hugely affected by this virus. I don't know anybody who has it. Nobody I know has died. I haven't lost my job. The worst that's happened to me is that I've had to work from home for a bit and wash my hands a lot. But for a lot of people, this current situation is much, much worse. And I don't like the idea that this situation has come to kill a bunch of people just so that I can have a better perspective on what's important. And I know that's yeah. not what anybody was saying, but I, it's worth laying that out very clearly. So, so there's a challenge from this week's discussion. And the challenge is... Can we be instruments of fulfilment of Psalm 20? I, I think not only can we, we must be. Otherwise, we're not doing our part of the deal. Now, that's been a very fruitful discussion. We had some comments from people um, who listened to last week's podcast who questioned why we weren't going through the Sabbath school lesson. I mean, the honest truth is that I just didn't feel like it. In the sense that the, the quarters, last quarter and, and this quarter, are, are, I think, really good discussions. The topics were obviously picked a long time before the virus. I feel that, uh, you know, looking at different modes and genres within the Bible and methods of Bible reading is a fantastic idea. It, it's not the, the sort of Bible study I would turn to personally in a time of crisis. The Psalms, in as much as the Psalms, it's almost like you're looking over someone's shoulder. It's a sort of a personal spiritual log. There's highs and there's lows, and it's a very raw. I, I, I do think it's a fruitful discussion for this time. I'm happy to continue it in that way. Well, well, let's do that. Unless we're flooded with requests to, to run through the subsequent lesson, let's continue with the psalms. Any suggestions of psalms? I've already had one. I was trying to find 
the one because I thought it would be good to fit one, pick one that was a, had one of those tricky passages in it. And I was thinking of the by the rivers of Babylon we wept. Which, which psalm is that? Um, 137. I found it. So once again, um, anyone who's listening in who has comments of the sort that you might want to were at a Sabbath school discussion, you might have contributed. Uh, please email them. We've started an email account just for this podcast. The address is sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Any comments we receive there, we'll share at the start of next week's podcast. And feel free to, to send in comments on any of the Psalms we've done so far, so Psalm 46 or Psalm 20, or the one for the next discussion. If you've got some burning um, thoughts, uh, useful thoughts, interesting perspectives on Psalm 137, then email those through and we, we can deal with them when we discuss that psalm. And if we can't deal with them, we can at least be very interested by them. Thanks for joining us.